HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided that they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, I am joined by Chef Nick Tamburo. Nick began his career in Boston, working at restaurants like Flower Bakery, Savonor's Butcher, and Market and Radiance Radius by Chef Michael Schlau. Nick then joined the Momofuku team at Noodle Bar, and then he moved to Belgium, where he spent some time at DeWolf, the Michelin-starred restaurant. Then he returned to New York and also joined back up again with the Momofuku team at Co. He reopened that restaurant at their new location as a cook and then became uh, the sous chef there. Then he worked very close to where we're sitting right now at Blanca here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And then he went back to Momofuku, where he is currently the chef de cuisine at Momofuku Nishi. So we're going to be covering a lot today. We're going to talk a lot about the Momofuku empire, which you've spent a lot of time with, and also uh, going overseas. Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So we usually start the show at the beginning in your childhood, trying to figure out where maybe the love of food was born, where it developed. So tell the listeners a little bit about where you grew up, what your family was like. Were you a food family or were you not, did that not play a role in your, or in your sort of formative years? 
Um, so yeah, I grew up um, in Massachusetts, like 30 minutes south of Boston uh, in the suburbs. Um, so growing up, both my parents worked in the city. Um, and I'd say both my parents are great home cooks. Um, I don't know if food was ever... I don't know. My mom was always trying out like new recipes and stuff like that from home magazines and things. Um, and I, I really like their cooking, but I don't think I ever thought that this was, you know, the trajectory that my life would take. So what did you think when you were, you know, eight, 10, 12, 15, where were you, what was your headspace like in terms of high school, college career? Yeah. Um, well, in high school, I guess music was like my main thing. Um, you know, like playing, I played in a couple of bands and, uh, I was really big into art, art class, like that kind of thing. Um, and in high school I did work at a, a bagel place. Um, it's kind of like a, a regional chain, I guess, Brugger's Bagels. Um, I did a little bit of baking there as well. Um, but it was just kind of like a after school job. Um, but yeah, so then I, I went to college in Boston at, um, Emerson college and I went with like the, the plan of studying, uh, like music production. Um, but then I don't remember why exactly like quickly shifted my focus to a major called experimental media. Uh, and that became like my focus, I guess. What is that exactly? Um, it was, I mean, at least for me, it was like avant-garde filmmaking, some performance art, uh, some sound design stuff, um, that kind of thing. Uh, making like small little personal films, I guess. Um, and I guess I don't know what I thought that I was going to do with that experience, but um, I was thought maybe... I'll just play in bands and maybe that'll be a thing or uh, I'll go to graduate school and try to get my MFA and maybe I'll teach and try to be a professor or something like that. I think those were my ideas about my future at that time. So there's a lot of chefs that started out being extremely serious and passionate about music and it seems like you were well along the way to pursuing uh, a career in that realm in some musical capacity or, or definitely in the arts. Cooking, not far off. It's not a major digression from that path, but there's a vast difference from, you know, sitting at a computer editing tape right. and uh, cooking in a kitchen. So how did you end up uh, starting in restaurants in Boston? A lot of the places that you work, were you working in them while you were attending Emerson or was it a type of thing where you got done with school, you were looking for a gig and you picked up a shift at a bakery? Like how did the, how did that come about? Um, a lot of it was at least, um, when I was working at flower, I was in school still. Um, I was just working at the counter, you know, making coffee or sandwiches. And I got to do like a few prep projects here and there and I actually really enjoyed that stuff. But I don't think I even at the time thought that I would, you know, make a career of it. Um, but yeah, I started to get more and more interested in food. Like, I feel like this was the big moment of food blogs like at this time um so reading a lot of food blogs started buying cookbooks um I had like a professor in college that kind of like almost introduced me to that 
uh, kind of like high-end, like avant-garde cuisine, which was kind of my first interest in it because I could see like all of those connections to the art world. Um, and so then I, I thought it might be something that I would want to pursue. Um, so then I got the job at Savinor's, uh, also just working at the counter, but I thought that if I went there and could learn a little bit more at food, like maybe I had half a chance to work behind the butcher counter and maybe I would be able to make some more connections that could get me closer to working in a kitchen. So when we're talking about sort of avant-garde art and, and film production in the context of you getting into food, were you really into heavily plated, uh, very artistic kind of uh, modernist approach to, to food or were you chasing flavors? Like what kind of, what was really interesting you on the food blogs and in the Boston uh, sort of landscape of restaurants, were you saving up your money and going to high-end tasting menus or were you just all of a sudden exploring flavors in a new way? Um, it was definitely, yeah, that kind of like modernist cuisine stuff that I was interested in at the time. Um, I had this, you know, this film course in school and uh, the professor, this great professor I had, Ken Eisenstein, we were talking about like postmodernism and how it, you know, it, its presence in film and media and how it kind of permeates like all these aspects of the world. And he would show, he showed the class some pictures from food at, uh, at WD-50. And it was like the eggs Benedict that he does and the coconut like sunny side up that like looks like a fried egg. And like when I saw that, I was like, whoa, this is like, I'd never seen anything like that before. And then I was really interested in reading about like, the fat duck or like a linea, like those type of restaurants is like what was really intriguing to me. And a lot of that has sort of defined where you've made career choices down the line. You've gone to several places that pursue that, that sort of excellence of technique. You went to a Michelin starred restaurant in Blanca, which we'll, we'll definitely talk about later on in the show. I am curious about the first job that you were a, a, like a proper line yeah. cook and you got your ass kicked and you <laughs> thought to yourself, well, I've been reading cookbooks and that was really cool and fun. And now, oh my God, I'm, you know, prepping out the mise for my station and maybe it wasn't super glamorous and you really were like in the trenches as a cook. What was that first job and what was that like mentally for you? Yeah, that was really hard. <laughs> uh, so I, the first restaurant where I was able to, to be a line cook was um, this restaurant called Evu uh, in Cambridge. Um, the chef was Peter McCarthy, and it's the only restaurant I worked at in Boston that's still open to this day, to my knowledge. Um, and I had no, like, experience as a cook. Um, I had to practice, like, knife skills at home because I knew, like, on my trail, like, maybe they would ask me to brunoise something or julienne something. So I tried to make sure that I was able to do all of those things. Um, so yeah, I trailed and they gave me a job. I don't know why, but I'm definitely really grateful for it. Uh, I don't know if I would, you know, return the favor at this moment to <laughs> someone with zero experience. Um, but yeah, at first it was only part-time. I was still working at Savonors. So I worked at Evu like three days a week and worked at Savonors for two days a week. Um, but yeah, those three days for sure were like, I wanted to be there, but I almost, like, dreaded them also. Um, I think I was still in school at the time, too. So there was, like, a lot going on. Um, 
And, and were you picking up like a couple shifts a week and working PM service and yeah. then going to class the next day? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot. I think uh, I started cooking for real my senior year. And like my last semester, I was like a, a little bit ahead in credits. I only had like two or three classes. So it was like a little bit less like course load. But um, but yeah, it was a lot. Um, and I only stayed at Yivu for about six months, which I regret looking back on it now. Like there's definitely a lot more that I could have learned at the time. Why'd you leave? Um, I wanted to, I don't actually remember if they had full-time availability or not. So maybe I wanted to, you know, do the cooking thing full-time and I'd finish school. That was part of it. And the other part was this, there was this new restaurant opening and I wanted to be a part of like that opening team of a restaurant. And it was a little bit more of like the kind of modernist food that I like was interest, interested in at the time. Um, so, so I went to do that. Um, it wasn't a great restaurant. I won't say the name of it here, but, uh, the sous chef I had there was really, really great. And he kind of like, I feel like built the foundation for, he like taught me what it was to like know how to work in a kitchen, I think. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by, what does it mean to learn and know how to work in a kitchen? I guess I feel like every in your career, when you begin like a new phase, there's always like a moment where you realize that you thought that you knew stuff and then you realize that you don't know anything. So it's like I had worked at this restaurant for six months and I go to open this new restaurant. I had no idea like what it would take to be able to like do that. Um, Cause now I was like responsible for like my own station for the first time. And there was no like kind of like, hand-holding that there was before. Um, Evu was, like, a really well-structured, like, well-oiled machine. They had been doing it for a long time, so they would there would never be, like, nothing horrible was going to happen to you, I guess. Um, but, yeah, and then opening a restaurant, you know, it's, like, that first six months or whatever, it's a lot of work. So I was, like, not mentally prepared for that. I ask you this next question in the context of the fact that you're part of the Momofuku group, which, which has a lot of restaurants and a lot of infrastructure. Uh, Flower Bakery has a lot of locations, I don't know, 10 or something like that in Boston. And Michael Schlau has multiple restaurants in D.C., Boston. Uh, when you were there, did you, now looking back, do you feel like you, you were gleaning a lot of experience about what it was like to work in a very large operation with lots of locations and, and moving pieces or has that fed into any of the success that you've had in the Momofuku empire? Or do you think that those are totally two separate things? Um, I don't think that I really thought about it at the time, especially like just being a cook. I just wanted to make sure I was set up for service, <laughs> you know, and, but even, you know, working for Momofuku, like each restaurant really operates as its own entity. So how did you end up there? Let's, Let's jump towards uh, Noodle Bar. Okay. And uh, so you're in Boston, and do you decide that you're going to move to New York and then get the job, or did the job draw you to New York? What what what, what was the path that brought you here to the um, city? So after I finished school, um, I was still working at this new restaurant, the one that I helped open, and um, some restaurant that shall not be named. Yeah. Okay. And uh, a bunch of my friends, you know, they all worked in film and um sound and like that kind of thing so a lot of them moved to new york to to do that 
and um, I stayed in Boston. I wanted to like finish my year at this spot and, and do it right and all that. Um, and uh, after leaving Boston, actually, um, with my girlfriend at the time, we moved to, uh, to Portland, Oregon first. Uh, spent about three months there. Um, broke up with my girlfriend. So then I moved to New York because that's like where I, everyone that I knew lived in New York. And I felt like I needed to be around those people. Um, and so, yeah, I came here and worked at some restaurant for like the first month or so. I was here, didn't like it at all, and then trailed at Noodle Bar. Um, and really, like immediately, I think on my trail, knew that I was going to like fit in there. Why? Um, there were a lot of people my age. I was like 22 at the time, maybe. When is this exactly? Can you pinpoint year-wise? Um, probably 2012 or 13. So it had been open for two years at that point or something like that? Uh, no, longer than that. I okay. think Noodle Bar opened in 2008, if I want to say. So it was well-established as yeah. as a, a, a place. I mean, it was busy every night for at sure. that point. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah, and Sambar was open. Co was open. I think Mopesh was open as well at that time. And... Yeah, I think the place I was working when I first moved to New York, it was like a tiny place, and I was like, would be like the only cook on the line. It was like me and the executive chef and the sous chef, so I would just get like destroyed and berated like the whole night because I was the only person there. Yeah, it um, all flows downhill. Unfortunately. Yeah, and there was no kind of like team mentality that I had worked in before in Boston. I remember asking like the sous chef like after service one night, like, you know, you want to like grab a beer or whatever, or, like, and he was like oh, like, we don't really go out after work. He's, like... <laughs> and he kind of, like, gave me the impression that, like, in New York, like, people worked too hard and were too, like, exhausted to, like, go have beers after work. And I was, like, I don't really think that that's true. Um, but, yeah, so, like, going to Noodle Bar, there was, like, a good crew, like, a bunch of people, you know, my own age, and everyone was, like, really hungry and learning, and the management team was really great. Um, Sean Heller was the chef at the time there. And, um, yeah, it was awesome. Like immediately I knew, I think that I was going like, to develop friendships with people that were there and yeah, it was great. What was the creative process like for you personally coming into a restaurant that was well-established as part of a group that was well-established, but I, I assume that there was still a good amount of freedom at a place like Noodle Bar to contribute. Is that true or false? Yeah, I felt like the chefs wanted they wanted us to learn. It was like a real learning kitchen, I think, where when you, you know, the the bun station is you're making pork buns, the noodle station you're making ramen, and then there was at the time there was like a garmanger station and then there was the saute station where you would do like a little bit more like nuanced food. And um I started on the saute station and um you know, the sous chefs would be like, they would start with kind of like easier dishes when you first started the station and then be like, what do you want to cook? Like, we'll do this like fish special or we'll do like a beef special so you can like learn how to cook meat to temp and like all of this kind of stuff. And they really like structured the menu based on like learning. And I would see that like later when I moved on to like another station, you know, a new cook that had never done those kind of things before cooking meat and fish to temp like that, they they would go back and start at square one and it would be like a really start with like a really simple, just like 
a clams dish where you just steaming clams to order and then like progress from there to like more complicated things. It sounds like they had a structure in place to develop talent to then probably push it out to other restaurants or at least help people grow within the organization. At that time, did you feel like you'd found a place to stay and expand and grow or were you just soaking up information and not really sure of what your path might be? Yeah, I didn't really know what I was going to do next. I didn't think that I was going to stay at Momofuku for as long as I have. Um, and, you know, I've, I've gone and done things here and there, but um, where was I going with this? <laughs> well, what do, you, what do you think was the reason that you left then? Um, I'd been there for a year, and that was kind of like, it was still the beginning of my career, and that was like the thing that you did. You had to like, put in your year in this kitchen and then, and then find out what you wanted to do next. And, um, that's when I decided to go Stasia into Wolf, but it was cool because like a lot of the people that I was working with that I developed really great friendships with, they all went and we all went and staged at like really great restaurants. Um, one of my friends went to Stasia at Attica in Melbourne. One of my friends went to a mass in Copenhagen. Another friend went to uh, Dom in Brazil and we were all just like, worked at noodle bar together so we were all kind of like encouraging each other to like do these things i think one person would like go do it and be like hey i i just this is what i'm gonna do after i leave noodle bar i'm gonna go stage in europe and then everyone else would be like whoa i'm gonna i'm gonna do that too <laughs> why belgium though i mean i it seemed like around that time specifically that you went uh overseas it was really like scandinavia or bust yeah. and you're clearly uh passionate about sort of minimalist plating, modernist technique, it seems like Copenhagen would have been a perfect spot for you. I'm not super familiar with the restaurant, so I'd love to hear about where you went and why you made that decision to pursue that restaurant in Belgium. And also, if the technique there was influenced by its proximity to, to France and Germany, or if it was its own identity of a restaurant within, within Belgium. Yeah, um, so Indewolf, um, it was in the countryside um, of Belgium about, it was like just over the French border, like you could walk to France from there, um, in a small town called um, Drenuder. Um And I went there, you know, I was still reading a lot of food blogs at the time, trying to, almost trying to find like the next restaurant that would be like people would think was important. But it, it, a lot of it was, like, I didn't go to Copenhagen because I wanted to go to somewhere that provided housing <laughs> for stages. And a lot of restaurants in cities don't do that. Um, but restaurants in the middle of nowhere, they have to do that because where is the staff going to live? So they had a house there, like, down the road from the restaurant. It was about a 10-minute walk where all the stages lived. And there was, like, six of us in that house. Um, Can you talk about any technique or experiences that occurred when you were at Indewolf that you feel are super important to helping you grow as, as a cook? Is there something that, that you learned or that the chef there taught you that really like sticks out in your head as something that you've carried with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, working with Kobe was just really amazing. He's just like a great guy. Um, super generous. Uh, we were closed on, I think Sunday and Monday. So 
Saturday after service, we would usually have like, we would all sit in the dining room and like smoke cigarettes and like eat food. And uh, that first Saturday we had, you know, we had like whatever fish left over from the week. So he just like cooked dinner for everyone. And I was like, I thought it was really crazy. Um, and he was always, he was always pushing people to have fun. Like we worked really, really hard there. That, that was my first like introduction to like the European style of working, which is not like how most restaurants operate in the U S I would say like we would get there at like eight or nine in the morning and be there until midnight, you know, working like two services a day, which is like every other restaurant I worked at, there was the lunch crew and there was a dinner crew, but not, not there. Uh, and, but even still like after service on like a Friday night, he'd be like, Oh, let's like drive into town and like go drink beers. And everyone was like, I'm tired. Like we got to be here tomorrow. And, He didn't care. (laughs) Uh, And just seeing the way that he would work his creative process. There was one night where we were, we knew we were going to change the dessert on the menu and it was, you know, it's a tasting menu. So um, he was messing around with the dessert all day, like tinkering with things, tasting things. And we hadn't really figured it out by the time that service had started. He was still messing with it. And, you know, at pre-service, he was like, the new dessert's going to be something, like, I think it was, like, quince and something else. And he was like, I don't really know what it's going to be yet, but the time the first guests are on dessert, it'll be, it'll be ready. And so, like, all service, he was just, like, working on this dish. And then the first one's, like, ready to go out. And he's like, okay, guys, this is, this is the dish. And, like, showed us how to plate it. And it was just like, I never... <laughs> nobody does that. And that was really cool to me because... He just, like, cooks from, like, intuition, I guess. Um, Yeah, that was really cool. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to jump back to the United States and start talking more about uh, your growth into your current role. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love yes. the Armenian pizza. How much I'm eating <laughs> and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community. For me, it's the, the, the science of starters. So much information. Very inspiring so far because everybody has a different outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead, but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind, Check out HRN On Tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. I'm 
I'm Southern Teague of Amoria Margo and a co-host of the Speakeasy right here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, my favorite thing to do every week is to come here and be on the show. I have lots of jobs. I'm a very busy person. Um, and I do this because I love it. I get to sit down and talk to all my heroes for about an hour every week. It's incredible. And I hope that you enjoy it, making a great effort to share with you. And we'd like you to share back with us. It's our summer fundraiser, and we'd love for you to donate uh, at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You can click on the beating heart, and you can even choose shows that you'd like to donate to specifically. And you can also choose a recurring monthly uh, gift. Uh, And for all that, we'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and I am here with Chef Nicholas Tamburo. He is uh, currently the CDC at Momofuku Nishi. Before we get to Nishi, I want to talk about a restaurant that's only about 30 feet away from us, where you spent a little bit of time. Uh, Blanca, for those listening that aren't familiar with Blanca, can you describe what that restaurant is like and also what your role was was there? Um, Yeah, you know, I only... You know, spent a hot minute at Blanca, really. Um, but I was working in pastry. Um, so it was myself and the pastry chef, um, Emily. And um, at the time, uh, my friend Galen was kind of running things over there. And I had gotten back. Um, I had left uh, Momofuku Co. And I did uh, some traveling. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. So... I asked them if they needed any help and they needed a pastry assistant. And I hadn't worked exclusively in pastry before, although I've done a fair amount of it. Uh, so yeah, I was like, sure. Um, so yeah, Blanca's a really cool, interesting restaurant. You know, it's only 12 seats. Um, they do 24 covers a night. Um, it's a tasting menu. Uh, it's about 20 courses or so. Um, what really... I think is most interesting about it is the way the meal progresses and the size of the dishes. Um, I ate there a couple years ago before I worked there and the food is very small, but in a way that's really interesting because the food comes very fast and it almost has like a kind of like omakase like feel to it. Um, And I don't think anything is more than like, three or four bites, but it's really interesting, a really interesting way to put together a meal. I think that no one else is really doing. I'm I'm curious. So you worked pastry there. Was that because the, that was the role that was available or did you want to get back a little bit to your Boston roots from (laughs) 10 years prior and, and kind of bake again and, and get involved on the, the sweet, sweeter side of things? Like what, why that role at Blanca? It was just what they had, which is mm-hmm. which was fine with me. You know, I wanted to work. Um, once I once I got back from this, this traveling after leaving Co, I had worked at a, a friend's place um, in Williamsburg for a little bit, doing like it was like a really simple like Japanese food, um, nothing fancy at all, and I I'd missed that environment, you know, the fine dining thing and and that structure and focus and drive, so. I wanted to work in that kind of environment, but at the same time, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I didn't want to make like a huge commitment. And this was kind of like, I had been a sous chef previously, so I didn't, 
you know, that was kind of like the direction that my career was going in. Like I wanted to continue on that trajectory. Um, but this was an opportunity where I could work at a really amazing restaurant, but um, still have time to kind of like figure my stuff out. So at this point, you're probably driving the Momofuku people crazy. You've left and come <laughs> yeah. back uh, many times, but clearly uh, there's something there that is super appealing to you, and they see something in you that obviously they see a skilled uh, cook, chef, that, that they want to bring back in the fold. So at this point, do you, do you go to work for Joshua Pinsky? Is that what happens after Blanca and you're at Nishi? Like, what's the path from Blanca to coming back to Momofuku at this point for the either fifth or maybe sixth time that you've rejoined him? Yeah, um... So yeah, Josh, uh, who's the corporate chef for Momofuku now, he was the executive chef at Nishi. He was the opening chef there. Um, we worked together at Co. He was my sous chef and then chef de cuisine there. And um, I had actually known him for a long time since back at Noodle Bar because Co. was right next door at the time. Um, and yeah, he was kind of like, he had asked me to, to come work at Nishi a couple of times before. Uh, we had talked about it a lot. And uh, finally, I guess he convinced me that it was the, the right move, and it was. And what is Nishi? How does it relate or differ from other restaurants like Noodle Bar and Sam? For those that have never been to any of the restaurants listening, that have maybe never been to New York, if you can just give sort of a, a quick snapshot of what happens at Nishi and how it, it may contrast or or blend with what happens at the other restaurants. Yeah. Um, so, well, the biggest difference between Nishi and the other restaurants is that Nishi is an Italian restaurant. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Momofuku, when you think of Momofuku, most people don't think of uh, Italian cuisine. Um, you know, people might think of, you know, it's Asian flavors. I would say that that's not, we just cook delicious food. That's the goal, Momofuku's goal. Um, but Nishi is a restaurant where uh, we do focus on a particular cuisine. Um, and we try to reinterpret that and reimagine that. There's definitely a couple flourishes on the menu sometimes that seem like a little bit of the other restaurants creeping in. But for the most part, it does say, it does feel um, like a modern traditional Italian restaurant. Was that? an exciting proposition for you? Or at first, did you feel like that wasn't necessarily direction that you wanted to go in? Like, did Do Josh really have to twist your arm to come back based on the flavor profiles of the restaurant? Or were you intrigued about working in the realm of, of Italian flavors? Um, actually, I have never, you know, really worked at an Italian restaurant before, unless you count Blanca, which is maybe kind of Italian. But um, so Italian food is not something that I've ever really been interested in, to be honest. Um, I'm Italian-American, and we, we ate, like, a fair amount of Italian food growing up, but for some reason it never really caught my interest the way maybe Japanese food would or, some, or something like that. Um, but I wanted to kind of embrace that. I think it's kind of my goal going into it, and... You know, what kind of Italian food can we cook with knowing next to nothing about it? Uh, and that's what we're doing. Um, so I'm trying to look at it as 
a strength, um, like the, this lack of knowledge about, you know, tradition and about that cuisine. Um, so we can just kind of free fall into it and figure it out and not having any preconceived notions about what that food should look like or what it should taste like, um, to use that to our advantage. What's your day to day like now that you are the, the CDC of Nishi? I think this is a really fascinating question for people to hear because really no two restaurants are alike. And when you get to the, to the leadership roles, to the CDC, to the executive chef positions, uh, it can also wildly differ from restaurant to restaurant. So I'm curious first, what is your day to day like? And then is it what you expected it would be? Um, well, it's definitely not, uh, glamorous. Um, (laughs) so, you know, my only other time managing, uh, as in a management position was at Co, um, where I was a sous chef and working at Co and working at Nishi are very different. Um, mostly just like the a la carte nature of the restaurant and the amount of like moving parts that are involved. Um, but Nishi is a really small operation, um, especially in the grand scheme of restaurants and in the grand scheme of the Momofuku universe, um, there's not really another restaurant like it that's part of, that's a Momofuku restaurant. We're only about 56 seats um, and we have a really small, tight-knit crew. So it's really hands-on from everyone all the time. Um, You know, I find myself washing dishes on more than one occasion or, you know, picking up shifts on the line and we're all there like fully, you know, every day. And you're open for several services. So have you found that once you've been elevated to this position that, uh, and you have to take on certain you know, roles jumping on the line and things like that. How have you been able to carve out time for the creative process? And what's the feedback mechanism uh, to say upper management or to Josh or to David Chang or whoever might be coming in to taste those plates? I'm curious, do you work on a dish when you have the time to switch the menu around creatively and does it go on? Or is there a mechanism for, for feedback that you, that the dish gets filtered through before it hits the menu? Um, right now we pretty much have the freedom to, to change the menu as we want, which is great. Um, you know, Josh is, is around a lot and he'll come by and, and taste things and we'll talk about ideas in text or email. And, um, I think we have a lot of similar, a similar approach to like working on dishes and we like a lot of the same things. So it's easy to, to talk to him about those things. Um, but yeah, there's no... Unfortunately, I don't have any kind of like time carved out for myself to like work on dishes. It's kind of whatever time is left at the end of the day. Um, but I think still being like pretty new to this, um, you know, I've only been there about seven months. Um, we're changing the menu at a pretty good clip. Um, you know, I get pretty restless with that kind of thing. So we're just constantly working on new stuff. From the from the perspective of of you in in this fairly new role uh, and and taking it on and the the general pressures of just running a restaurant, I'm curious if the fact that David Chang and Momofuku are so famous is that give you a little bit of um, additional pressure or does it alleviate pressure from you 
Um, do people have expectations about a Momofuku restaurant that you feel like adds on? Or do you think you have some breathing room because Momofuku has gotten some goodwill over, over time by being the success that it is? Um, that's a tough one. I think, uh, you know, it is, it is hard because people have, you know, certain expectations. Maybe people have never been to a Momofuku restaurant before or maybe have never been to New York before and they want to eat at a, at a Momofuku restaurant. They have certain expectations going into it that, you know, you want to exceed them. You want to be to the food to be better than they imagined. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> that answers the question. Yeah. Uh, what are your, what are the successes that you think you've had in the last seven months since you've taken over? And if you can articulate, uh, a specific, failure or a place that you feel like, um, a time maybe that you've, you've come up short and, um, how have you been able to maybe move past that? Um, yeah, so this is like a a whole new role for me and I'm definitely learning more every day. Um, what's your, uh, like, what do you, what's the successes that you've had so far seven months in? Um, well, I think the, the biggest challenges have been not just, you know, I've, ma- I've managed cooks before, but managing other managers is, is really difficult. Definitely something I haven't done before. And what do you mean by that? Like general, the general, like working with a general manager or? No, like the sous chefs oh, and, and okay. stuff like that, you know, um, trying to be this, like the, the guiding light for everyone, I guess. Um, it's not, you know, not something that I've done and not something that, you know, that I'm entirely comfortable with personally being that like the idea of a chef, like when, when you and I maybe like think of a chef in the traditional sense is someone that is very confident. Um, someone that is maybe like yells a lot and knows exactly what they want and will do whatever he has to, to like drive his team to, to, to do the things that need to be done. And that kind of like personality that like, that like macho aspect to it is not something that like I've ever, does not come to me <laughs> easily. Um, I'm a pretty like introverted person. Um, it's hard for me to, uh, to, I guess to explain to people like what our goals are or what I expect of them. Um, that's definitely my biggest struggle for sure. Um, and I never want to come off as a person that thinks that they know best because I don't, you know, we're all in this together and I'll take and accept any advice from anyone in the restaurant. Um, so you've, you've been cooking a really long time and you've moved around to lots of different restaurants and yet it does kind of seem like you moved into the culinary world like pretty slowly it seems like you kind of eased into it over time after pursuing um a different career path and going and getting a formal education do you still see yourself as doing this for the rest of your life like do you feel like you fully found your place um in the culinary world uh do you feel like you've sort of fully realized your sort of vision for yourself 
you know, I finally feel comfortable <laughs> doing what I what I'm doing. Um, it's always been something where I would say until maybe a year ago, where I always thought like at any moment I could just drop everything and, and do something else. Um, and at some point, sometimes I, f- I felt like the reluctant cook, like somehow I fell into this and I'm deep in it now and I'm just doing it. And, uh, but you know, after, um, I worked at co for three years and after leaving there, um, my girlfriend and I, we did some traveling, uh, and then we came back and I didn't really know, um, at the time I was trying to open my own restaurant. I thought that's, that was the next thing that I was going to do. Um, and I was just kind of trying to, to fill the time in the meantime. Uh, and that was the first time in forever where I haven't been working all of the time and, or working towards a certain goal. I didn't have any sort of like motivation. I'm just kind of like drifting about. And I think that's when I realized that was like the, the changing point for me to realize that like I'm in this a hundred percent. Um, because not having that was like horrible. Um, it's just a horrible feeling. Um, and I realized that I need that, you know, work. Like I'm not happy not working 70 hours a week. Uh, and I didn't know that. Like there was no way for me to know that until I wasn't doing it anymore. And that was like a real like moment, I guess. So you, you briefly sort of flirted and pursued the idea of opening up your own restaurant. You're now in charge of a restaurant. I assume that you're learning a huge amount about costing and managerial roles and all the infrastructure pieces that go along with the day-to-day operations of a restaurant. Uh, do you still have that vision and dream and drive one day to do your own thing? Does that seem like a project? Now that you the curtain's been pulled back yeah. <laughs> and you see all the Excel documents, does this seem like something that you would want to still try one day down the line? Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's the only... I feel like it's the only thing that I like really want in my life. Uh, and, but I'm glad that I didn't do it when I thought I was going to do it because now being in this, now I know that I was not ready at all. Um, so if, if I put you on the spot and I say, you've got the location, you've got the money and you have the several years of experience under your belt running the show at, at Nishi, what does your kind of dream spot look like when you open it? Is it, is it in New York? And what kind of food would it serve? Um, you know, I don't know if it's in New York. New York, uh, I have a lot of, you know, other favorite places. And, um, but I do feel like we do have, like, a pretty strong community here. Um, but what, what I'm interested in doing is kind of, a lot of people, especially Momofuku, actually have done, you know, the kind of, like, high and low thing where you have this really ambitious food and environment that's like a little bit more laid back, um, which I think is great. You know, that's definitely something that I'm interested in. Um, kind of like a combination of like a neighborhood place, but you know, with an ambitious, ambitious menu that can be a part of like this greater culinary conversation. Um, somewhere I used to, a friend of mine and I, when we were, we were talking about opening a place, we would talk about like, it's like 50% dive bar, 50% restaurant where like maybe there's a jukebox 
High Life's are $3, but you can also get a $300 bottle of champagne. Like, that sounds great to me. <laughs> One day. Yeah, someday. Nick, thanks for uh, joining us here on the line and telling us about your story and uh, your new role. Congratulations on uh, being the CDC at Nishi. I know it's still kind of new, but uh, tell everybody where they can find you and uh, and the address of the restaurant. Yeah, so we're at 232 8th Avenue uh, in Chelsea. Um, we're open seven days a week for lunch and dinner. Cool. Thanks again. Thanks. Everybody, thanks for tuning in to listen. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for new episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.